Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Biodynamic Guild podcast. I'm your host, Will Bratton, and today we're joined by Sundeep Kamath. Sundeep is the General Secretary of the All India Organic Network Association. He's the former Secretary of the Biodynamic Association of India. He's been on the board of IFOAM Asia, the representative body of the organic movement in Asia, and was on the organizing committee of the Organic World Congress in 2017. He's also a founding partner of Mandala Solutions, a boutique consulting firm which offers solutions to private organizations as well as governments. He is currently advising the federal government of Bhutan on certifications, state government of Nagaland, and several municipalities and provinces in the Philippines on their plans to fully convert to organic, following the example of the state of Sikkim in India. Sundeep was part of the founding team of the first school in Asia offering a two-year residential advanced diploma in organic and biodynamic agriculture for rural underprivileged youth. He was on the executive committee of the Anthroposophical Society in India, and he's been the past president of Sudata, an adoptive parents association, and is a founder parent of the Bangalore's Waldorf School, the Bangalore Steiner School. You can find Sundeep listed as a Biodynamic Federation advisor at biodynamic-advisor.org or at his site, mandalasolutions.in. Sundeep, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So how and when did you find biodynamics? Uh, yeah, that's a very, very interesting story. You know, about 13, 14 years ago, I was a regular guy, you know, uh, having a leadership position at, uh, at America Online, if you would believe. And um, I was watching TV one day, and there was this program on TV where a guy was riding a horse on a tea estate. And he talked about the relation of the cosmos and the soil. You know? And that touched my heart. You know? And that I somehow something in me said that this is what I have to do. The only two things I got uh, from that program was the word, two words actually, biodynamics and Steiner. And of course, you know, I was on the treadmill of work. Uh, there was regular things. But uh, one of the gifts which I received uh, from this pursuit of anthroposophy is is finding my destiny and and that that you know just watching that program hit something really in my inner core that this this is something what i have to do because i was nothing to do with farming i was heading hr for a big big corporate you know working in an office uh, nothing to do with farms or farmers and and something really alien almost uh, touched uh, really a core of me uh, so after that, we had a, a anthroposophic training here, a medical training, which was very close to the office. I, I went for that, uh, basically to find out more about biodynamics. And uh, there I met uh, my first mentor in anthroposophy. Uh, you may have heard of her. Uh, her name is Dr. Michaela Glockler. She was uh, heading the medical section at that time. And I told her, you know, Dr. Michaela, I want to, I want to do something with biodynamics. And uh, she told me that, uh, you know, the Bangalore right now needs a Waldorf school, so you should start a Waldorf school instead, you know. And I told her, you know, I know nothing about education, not that I knew anything about farming. Uh, I said, how would I start a school? And, and this program, this training program is for seven days. Okay? And this would go every day, the back and forth. I would say agriculture and she would say education. And on the last day, she, she told me that, uh, you know, why don't you start the school in a farm? And uh, you know what? Uh, that's what happened. In, in a couple of years after that, she came, I think, 2010, and inaugurated the first uh, Waldorf school uh, in Bangalore, the Bangalore Steiner School, where we started with, uh, I was a founding parent. 
seven parents and, and 11 children. And um, we started in my friend's farm because that's how they came to me and they're looking for a place. And, and I met a, had a friend who had a farm and we were there for a year. So, so I did that for a couple of years. Um, I quit my job. I, I started working with the environmental causes because still the bi-dynamic part was not clear. And in, in two years' time, the school really grew. We crossed 100 kids, uh, I think, in, in our third year of operation. And, uh, and then Michaela told me that I could, I could come into biodynamics and, and supported me for the first uh, agriculture conference in Dorna. Uh, before that, I met my first uh, teacher in biodynamics here, Jakes. And along with him, uh, we started uh, the school. Uh, he, he, was the, he ideated that whole idea. And, and he asked me, you can help me fundraise for the school. And I was handling the HR and fundraising. And it was really exciting uh, to, to, make, to work with young people and ensure that they don't come into the cities and become almost like refugees in the cities. You know, Because when they come here, they have very low-paying jobs, uh, like security guards or, or you know, auto rickshaw, like that, cab drivers, and, and, and live in slums. So they can really have a good life if if they can be professional farmers, so to say. And, and it was, the college still continues. Uh, they've shortened the program for a year. Uh, but my teacher and I are no more involved in that. And after that, I came on the board. The association asked me to come on board. I was on the board for a term and then I was secretary for two terms. And, and yeah, really, I call myself now a biodynamic evangelist, you know, going everywhere. I also make a part of my income from giving advice to large projects who want to convert uh, to biodynamic and uh, more than that. Biodynamic evangelist really describes what I do the most now. Awesome. Um, can you tell us about the uh, some of the history of, of biodynamics in India? That's a very, very interesting history. You know, I recently, yeah, well, not recently, about a couple of years ago, a friend of mine gave me a newspaper, a small, uh, not a newspaper, a magazine, Biodynamics USA, uh, from 1957, I think it was. And there was a lady called Evelyn, I forget her last name. And she had come to India in 1950s, 56, something like this, and bought a set of preparations, uh, the Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer preparations, what, what you call your compost starters, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I spoke with Harold and we are doing a bit of research on this connection between America and India, the biodynamic moments. And Harold Hoven, you know, he did a little bit of research for me and he, he found out that she was actually, she learned from Pfeiffer, you know. And, and uh, she came to this place in southern India called Kodekanal and she, she brought um, the preparations there. And that's, that's what we know, at least documented uh, the first use of the preparations for compost making in the southern state of uh, Tamil Nadu in a hill station called Kodekanal. Uh, and we'll come back to that. That's very, very interesting, the link. Uh, after that, what we know is uh, two projects in India in the mid-80s. One is the Makaiberi Tea project, which decided to go Demeter. And the second project was in south, uh, again near Kodekanal, called Kurunji, which, which works with mangoes. You know. And these two projects were the first two projects to go Demeter in India. They had advisors coming from, uh, from Germany. And they had um, the preparations would come from Germany. Uh, very, very, very interesting that already uh, to get a Demeter then, because, you know, in the 80s, there was no organic standard 
so to say, because we didn't have your American NOP, we didn't have our Indian NPOP, even the EU was, you know, 10 years coming. So, so even before these organic standards started getting national standards uh, came into being, uh, you know, the Demeter was, uh, was av uh, available media in these two projects. Uh, what happened in 93 was, uh, 1993, the, there were a bunch of Gandhians, uh, people who follow Mahatma Gandhi, were very much in organic agriculture in a place called Indore uh, in, in southern India. And this is also a very goosebump moment you know, for me. I'm getting that I, and I will tell you why later. Um, so they had gone to Australia, to New Zealand for a for a study trip on organic. And there they met a man called Peter Proctor. And they, he was talking about biodynamics and they were very interested and they invited him over. So in 1993, we had the first biodynamic training on how to make a BD500 and how to make the preparations and about the planting calendar in this place called Indore, which is the capital of the, which is the, not the capital, it used to be the capital of the central state called Madhya Pradesh in India. And uh, very interestingly, Indore was the place where 70 years before, Sir Albert Howard made uh, the indoor type of composting. So, you know, organic agriculture really had uh, a first kind of awakening by the Agriculture Testament, the book written by Sir Albert Howard, who, who was in India and he discovered the traditional methods of agriculture and, and did the actual compost there. And not so far away from that site, in the same uh, agriculture college, the BD500 was put. You know, so, so it's a very, very special place. And uh, like I told you about Kodekanal, where Evelyn came and gave the preparations in a place called the Fellowship Ashram, uh, 1995, Peter and my teacher started the longest running biodynamic training program there, which happens every year in Kodekanal. So these two places where the trainings have been going on have a history of uh, biodynamics in the south and being really centers where, where organic agriculture where, uh, was really born. So, so that was kind of the beginning. And after that, it's, it's grown by leaps and bounds, you know, because the Indian farmers really take to take to take to biodynamics for a couple of reasons. Uh, the top two reasons, there are, there are many more. Number one is the cow is very central to Indian agriculture. So nearly every farmer in India has a cow, whether he's organic or conventional. And, and having a cow as a central part of our agriculture is, is, is very, very uh, favorable to them. And also the planting calendar, because they remember this from, from their grandfathers and, and using that. You know. So, you know, I do a lot of biodynamic training across the country and, and the kind of uh, acceptance I have, I don't think uh, there is no... Um, you know, no kind of barriers. They just accept it so easily and they feel that it's it's really a part of them. So so right now, you know, when I was the secretary, we did a kind of a study and we estimate that there should be about 100,000 farmers who practice some kind of uh, biodynamics because, you know, the, the method of measuring organic farmers or biodynamic farmers is by certification. And this part of the world, the certification is not that common. You know? So... So certified, we may have a few thousand farmers, but uncertified farmers who use, again, not all biodynamics, some part of biodynamics is, uh, we estimate to be more than 100,000. And this number we arrive at uh, because of the number of preparations sold. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, you can get a good indicator of how many farmers are there by 
by having the idea of the preparation sales. And as a, as an association, we had a we had a good idea of of how much preparation was being sold. Uh, so it's very exciting to be there now. It's it's growing again. We we have biodynamics uh, already in in our government policy. For example, I think it's one of the few countries in the world because the Gandhians in Indore, uh, when they were asked to make a proposal to the government, had already proposed that they should have biodynamics already in the 90s. And then uh, with the work of the association and the work of some of our pioneers. We have got this in all the government policies where, as a biodynamic farmer, you can also receive some subsidies for compost making, and and if as a uh, as a company which is promoting biodynamics and doing biodynamic training, you can get some subsidies from the government. Also, very interesting in the Philippines, I, I was there a couple of weeks ago, and I I found out then that biodynamic preparations are approved input in the Philippine organic standards. You know? So, so here it's it's biodynamics is much more accepted, much easy in this part of the world because there is not so much of the uh, intellectualization. I think because once the farmers use it, you know, I've seen, and I think the results are much better in the tropics. They see the the magic of biodynamics. They see the, for example, I'm working now on a rice project, and which has been organic for many years. And the minute they go biodynamic, they see, you know, the darker shade of green. In the paddy fields, you know, compared to the organic, the it's a darker green. They see all the rice stalks really standing upright, you know, like like almost soldiers, you know. They're, none of them are drooping, and because they see these changes from using biodynamics, they're they're also very easily convinced, and and they take to it quite fast. So that's about biodynamics in India. Any other specific side questions to that? Want to ask? No, it's. It's a great story. I, I'm I'm reminded of uh, I'm I'm glad you brought Sir Albert Howard into it. I'm reminded of his uh, book Soil and Health. Mm-hmm. It was uh, fundamental in 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 shifting my mindset uh, towards these types of practices. So mm-hmm. I, I'm I that's uh, that site where the two uh, combined it must be just kind of a a mecca for for this this in India. Um, yeah. yeah. What tell if you could tell us about the the culture of preparation making in India. Yeah, so uh, like I said, many small farmers take up uh, biodynamics, you know, and making the field preparations, the 500 is easy to do. The 501, again, is a bit bit challenging to do. And uh, the compost preparations, you know, takes a lot of work. So when Peter was here, he uh, set up uh, a couple of centers in India. You know, One was with uh, Benita in Nainital in the north, in the Himalayas, and another in the south in Kurunji in Kodakanal where the training happens with my teacher, Jakes. And these two were the primary preparation suppliers uh, uh, to, to most of most of uh, the farming in India. It's not uh, like you have in America where each farmer is making his own preparations because, uh, first of all, for the compost preparations, it's not easy to get all the flowers everywhere. And also, uh, while the 500 is easy to do, the 501, you know, getting the quartz and, and grinding it, is, it's quite difficult. For many small farmers and and the small quantity required, you know, it's uh, you know because the average farmer in India is less than a hectare, and all farmers, like I said, in India have a cow, so they have this milking and dairy operation already built in into their thing, and they have so much work to do. So to spend you know a few hours making a preparation which which you would need one gram of is is really uh, so we have a, a most most projects and most farmers they actually buy the preparation 
and we have these two large uh, uh, preparation makers, like I said, Benita in the north and uh, much, much, uh, very large, and, and Jake's um, in the south. Also, we have another preparation maker in the south and a couple of large projects, you know, which are about a thousand acre uh, a coffee estate and a, and a 16 strong, or 14, I think, 14 strong tea estate. They make large quantity of preparation for themselves because they, they use uh, so much. Uh, and many projects, large projects also make their own 500 and 501, but the compost preparation is always bought uh, from outside. And I estimate we, we would be using something like uh, 15 to 20 uh, kilos of the compost preparations. And in, in the number of horns being buried, I think it would be close to 150,000, 170,000 horns are being buried uh, by these operations. A hundred and fifty thousand horns. Yes, in in each or in no, no, combined or no, nationwide. Combined, it's nationwide, nationwide. Okay, what, that's still an exceptional. Uh, yeah, because you know the the kind of thumb rule. If you look at a medium sized horn, uh, you know we don't have very large horns. But uh, I recently found a picture of a large one. But mostly we have medium sized horns, and you get a harvest of you know eighty grams to under hundred grams. So we we keep a thumb rule of uh, one one horn per acre, you know, uh, as per the standard. So, so, and having that, so appro approximately one hundred and fifty or one hundred and seventy thousand horns are being used uh, every year. And uh, I was looking at some of the cattle breeds from Karnataka: mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Halikar, the Kilari, the yeah. Amrit Mahal. Yes, the, just very distinctive breeds. Are these the types? Of, are these the breeds we're talking about? Uh, unfortunately, you know, we had a government program which believed that the, the problem with these native breeds is they are very independent. They are very hardy and, and they're very hard to kind of say domesticate and very hard to milk. And many of mm -hmm. them are not good uh, high milkers. Even. Uh, it's very hard to milk them. They're not docile like your jerseys and your Holsteins. You know, they, they have character. They are, they are a bit, bit uh, tough to handle. And and that means also very difficult to impregnate. You know? So so it's uh, you know it's to get them pregnant is, is, a, is a big task. So traditionally they have not been um, kept as breeds for dairy. You know? They were generally cows at home, and they would give a little milk, which now people sell in the cooperative or, or for home use. It's it's not our average, for example, for milk yields is a fraction of what you have in the US or, or Europe. And uh, because of that, the government, what they did is they started a program of um, forcibly crossing these breeds with the Holsteins and the Jerseys to get a kind of milking breed. So the majority of the 300 million cattle we have in India are these mixed breeds and, and maybe a few, few hundred thousand are just, uh, you know, of, of these. There is a big interest now for these traditional breeds to come, uh, but because of that government program, they're they are not even 1% or, or, or less than, maybe a couple of percent of the cattle population that we have. The most cattle population we have is now these mixed breeds. Yeah, I understand. We would, uh, when I was young, we would import what we call the Brahma uh, and for the, the personality characteristics that you described in mm -hmm. Texas. It was good mm -hmm. to have that uh, more wild, independent spirit out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you but know just, of anyone? Because you mentioned that, I would, I, I would like to bring a point here about the gear cow. You know, the gear 
is a cow from Rajasthan, from the desert, the not very dry climate, and they are good milkers because there they don't have much water. And, and of course, I mean, good milkers mm -hmm. is still 1800 or 2000, which is much less than, than whatever the Western standard. And in Brazil, they wanted to have cattle which were good milkers as well as meat, you know, because their breeds were more meat oriented and they were not so much uh, for, the, for the milk. And they did a very successful program of mixing the gear and the Brazilian breeds. And it's a huge success there now that all, so they have cows uh, now which give a reasonable quantity of milk and the meat tastes good because they've uh, crossed the Indian breed and the Brazilian breed to get their, their idea of a perfect uh, cow. Interesting. Um, I guess this would be a good time to ask, uh, can you share with us some of the you know nuance and challenges of, of working with the bovine parts in a largely uh, Hindu nation? A very interesting question and very, very relevant to our current times. You know, till, say, a few years ago, six, seven years ago, we had no problem. We, we, uh, the preparations could be made everywhere. People knew because, uh, you know, we have such a large cattle population, like I said, 300 million, even uh, if you take 10% of them dying every year, it's still quite a lot. And uh, there were traditional routes where they would go. You know, people did not want to keep the male bulls or, or, or the cows who stopped milking. And there was an ecosystem where we had a kind of uh, slaughterhouses or cow shelters where, where they could go. And then a few years back, uh, for uh, kind of political reasons, we got a right-wing uh, party coming in and they started this uh, a cow slaughter uh, kind of ban and, and bringing in. Not in all states, but in the majority where they were in the north. And uh, this caused a certain uh, immediate stop of trade in, in, you know, even in meat. And in some areas, now in India, we have a problem with this. One problem is getting the supply because if there is uh, no slaughter of cattle happening, even, even from dead cattle, uh, you know, not, not being allowed to do that, it, it, uh, it's very difficult to get the parts. And the other being that because of this restriction and the rule and people are, are very hesitant to touch anything which is made with cow parts. Having said that, that's not all over the country. In the south, for example, we are much more, more liberal and uh, uh, the state which I mentioned, the state in Tamil Nadu and uh, Kerala, the other states and even in the northeast or certain states, it's, this rule is not there and there we can uh, freely make them. But in certain parts, it is getting to be a problem. So what they are doing, for example, is instead of using the cow skull, they use the goat skull. And um, mm. but because of the huge amount of cattle we have, you know, the cow horns is not a problem. Just to give you an example, I'm um, I'm in a project, a rice project, which is going to double their farmers, and and they do about ten to twelve thousand horns now, and we will have to do take that up to twenty five thousand horns. So we have to source another twelve, thirteen thousand horns and. Uh, in a state where this is very strict, we are able to get that. Uh, similarly, in the Philippines, where I'm doing a project with a municipality and we need their 10,000 horns, and that's almost impossible to get because the municipality just slaughters four, four cattle a, a week. So, so yeah, I mean, the horns uh, is not so much of a problem. You can still get many, but the other part for the compost making is, is a challenge in certain parts of India, not, not in all because of the political situation. Well, that's a, a great breakdown of the logistics, but um, can you speak to kind of the cultural implications? 
Yeah, so this this here, and then we will talk about that when we talk about other indational forms. See, there is um, there is this past which is kind of glorified or or talked about, which is not really relevant, you know, or not really true. You could say the the past is being kind of altered. So if you look at Indian agriculture, we we never were uh, you know agriculture didn't start here. You know, the real agriculture, as you know, 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 it started in Mesopotamia, right? Where, where cattle were domesticated and, 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 you know, then by the, they had these fields and the seeds started going. We, we were more primarily hunter-gatherers, you know. And even when I, I'll talk about it later, the Vikshayavida, most of our traditional knowledge, the old knowledge has been uh, around, uh, I'm not talking about what Albert Howard did, but I'm talking really ancient times, you know, thousand years ago was more thousands of years ago was more about plant about trees you know about horticulture and at that time they would use a lot of liquid manures with with animal parts you know those days like in india the the cow was not domesticated so they would use wild boar you know which was found in the forest and wild boar parts to to make a liquid concretion so we always had a meat eating part so if you look at Say the west of India, where Goa, where is a Christian state, or Kerala, or in the northeast, you know, uh, meat eating is is really in the culture. You know, it's it's really inbuilt in the culture, and it's in certain parts uh, where it's not. And uh, so that has been this uh, political kind of situation where you know there's been a kind of polarization for votes. This has become a kind of an issue and. And to do that, for example, we are the largest uh, meat exporter. I mean, we were for many, many years. I think we are number two now. Uh, so even though cow slaughter is banned, uh, but we we export the most uh, beef and uh, from buffalo meat in the world. You know, so so it's a kind of uh, paradoxical uh, kind of situation. Uh, but you know, we we have we have a, we've had a meat eating culture. Uh, many many communities, especially in the south, it's it's well documented. It's there most of the recipes. And certain part, of course, we also have the vegetarian one. But because of this, looking at history with a, with, with you know, with, with not a clear eye, with a, with a agenda, you could say it's it's being really torn out of uh, uh, place. Uh, but the cow is very venerated. You know, even Peter Proctor, when he came here, was was very surprised to see. We consider that the cow has all the gods. Uh, in her, you know, if you see some pictures from India, you'll see all the pictures of our gods and the cow. So the cow has already mm-hmm. always been venerated, you know, and uh, there was no problem of taking parts from a dead cow, and that's what happened because we had such a huge, like I said, you know, three hundred million. So you have a large amount of cows dying. So you could go to uh, the graveyard or where the cows are good, and you could you could get the parts. But now with this political manner, even that has become difficult in certain uh, parts of India. Understood. Um, so. Uh, Kind of along those lines, mm-hmm. it, uh, and and thank you for sharing the uh, the use of the goat skull. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone else? Uh, are there any other alternative uh, prepped uh, sheaths or otherwise that are being used there? Botanicals, anything that's maybe unique to India that people are trying? Yeah, that's a very very interesting question again, Will. And you know, I it's it's a bit um, again it's a very big paradox, right? Because I believe that before you even look for alternatives, and I get this question all the time from everybody who starts saying that, okay, you know, because we use some parts which are not available at all, you know, for example, the stag bladder or 
or you know the oak which is only in the himalayas or in the hill stations and most of these plants grow so why can't we get alternates i believe the way to get all get on this journey of alternates is to to first be familiar with the prep so the person who already started using this goat she's been making the preparation for 20 years and more you know so she's got a very big familiarity with the preps and then you can get into the alternate uh, looking for alternates we are looking you know we have a problem with valerian worldwide they are looking at there's a project to look at the alternative for valerian um again sheets like the stag blighter is is banned in india for example we are hunting you can't do it's a protected animal and you know so so there is there is this need for for um, uh you know looking for alternates but the need can be met by only people who first get very familiar with the preparations and according to me and 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 my teacher and and some other seniors in the moment uh you know first you got to use the preparations you know? then you got to make them a couple of times and then when you have a kind of familiarity then we can use our goitian observation models to look look for alternatives the now what we are doing is we are trying to put the cart before the horse you know that people say okay let's look at alternative i'll give you a very very good example of of the valerian you know we use the jatamansi in ayurveda for the roots for for many years it's been used in india as ayurvedic system but it doesn't flower at all it's a total different kind of valerian you know and the gesture of the plant is very different so so somebody who works with a valerian prep making it getting looking at the plant can then look for that there is a lot of uh, positive news in the philippines we found a oh, something which is very close to the oak you know there's a there is a kind of substitute for that uh, there are there are there is this work is going on right now uh, but it's easy to do with the you know with the cow skull and the goat skull and, and steiner also mentions that but you know the quantities the harvesting is very low if you you know the size of the cow skull and the goat skull you can imagine i have done experiments in in a project in thailand i'm involved in with the cows cow horns and the buffalo horns and we were not happy at all with the with the quality of the the vd500 which comes from the buffalo horn so as a project we you know we don't we don't continue that even though you get large quantities the buffalo horns are quite big uh but having said that the buffalo horn in certain parts like in china and all is allowed by the demeter standard to use uh but when we used them in thailand we could really see a clear difference in the bd500 from a cow horn and a buffalo horn and, and the cow horn just just was better according to to our sensory mm-hmm. experience so uh tell us about this um project that you're working on with the uh asian fellowship of preparation makers i appreciated your sending the uh the write up over and and the description of the project and i think it fits in perfectly right now yeah well it actually started with you guys and i was very inspired by uh, your fellowship of the american Pre- uh, preparation makers which you meet once once a year and kind of loosely under your association and um, and uh, my friend uh, jean gologly who was a publisher in the us who, who crossed the threshold uh, a couple of years ago uh, he arranged for me to address uh the fellowship uh, you know i think in 2018 or 19 i think not really sure, a couple of years ago three years ago and uh, the fellowship was really that that's the time i found out about your fellowship of preparation makers and it was very inspiring to see people coming together and sharing this knowledge uh, you know there's there's so much to learn and and it it's the journey is about it's about progress you know it's not about perfection um and um uh, i was inspired by that and also then i heard stories from the french association where what they would do is 
if a preparation maker was had you know a bad harvest of chamomile and then he would ask spread around the network and somebody had more chamomile so they would share these ingredients so we uh, had a plan you know especially now that the philippines and the thailand is, is going so much more into biodynamic and they have a large requirement and we cannot carry the preparations uh, across not not only from a it's also from a legal point of view and also from a sustainable point of view so it makes more sense that they start making the preparations locally and for that they need the ingredients uh, sometimes they need the dried flowers they need the knowledge how to do it uh, so we we are planning the trainings that you will have trainings there every year and the idea of the asian fellowship of preparation makers is that every country is uh, self sufficient in their need of the quantity of preparation they need and also in the knowledge so hopefully in the next couple of years that once the people have put in the preparations two three times they they are confident to do it themselves and and we have a kind of a annual training program like what we have here in india where people can come and learn so so it's i'm very excited that the federation approved uh, this project and we have a kind of seed funding from them we are going to do two trainings this year in in the philippines uh, and and in thailand uh, mainly on the compost preparation making and harold hoven um uh, from sacramento has agreed to be our, our master trainer for that and we're very happy to have him so <clears throat> that's going to happen in in october end in the philippines and beginning of november in, in thailand i was uh struck by a statement in in the uh, project objective um i'm going to mispronounce his name and i apologize apologize but uh, i believe it's a gentleman from thailand named uh pirachote yeah, Sam, you Wong. can call him Sam. Yeah, Sam. Is call him Sam. Sam. <laughs> yeah, yeah Sam. so Sam, uh, Sam said to Yuli Herter uh, mm. uh, uh, that he felt that he was going to a wedding in a borrowed suit. Yes, <laughs> and that uh, it, that he wanted his own suit. Yes. Uh, can you can you speak to that that idea? So you know there is a school of thought which comes from Australia. You know, and and this school of thought about biodynamics is that preparation making is a kind of a you know master craft which can be done by only the chosen few in some mountain somewhere you know it's temperate it, it has to have snow and and uh, you know and this this was the prevailing thought in many parts of asia you know in india we were lucky because we had peter proctor and in sri lanka there was richard thornton smith so so we we learned on early that yes the flowers grow here somewhere you can take them to places it's possible to grow uh to make preparations in the tropics and excellent preparations who work really well you know and uh, unfortunately in the rest of asia because the australian school of thought was uh, dominating uh the thought was that you had to always get these preparations from australia you know otherwise you know you the preparations could never be made by by you and me because we are you know we are not exalted souls or or mark or some some kind of qualification we didn't have and you know our system of thinking that you know everybody can make the preparations it's very democratic i'll give you my example when i go for my projects in 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 thailand or like you know the example with sam we first go and take the preparations you know then we take the ingredients for the preparations then we start taking the seeds for the flowers you know, and then do these trainings and slowly on their way they come so what sam was alluding to was maybe you know he's we don't have the best preparation there right now you know but it's at least mine and i'm learning and every year you get a little better and we i see that with this 500 you know it's it's getting he can now differentiate the very good quality bd 500 with 
with the cow horn and how it's coming out with the buffalo horn. And this year, I'm very excited that he's uh, going to do this compost workshop with Harold. And, and maybe in two, three years, the compost preparations also will be made, which I think are uh, as good quality as any. And that, that is proven by it working on the field. You, know? you, can, you can see the reaction of the plants to it. <clears throat> you can see the, the aura in the farm. You know, I feel that uh, the special thing in the farm, and you can feel that, that the preparations are really, really working there. So, so that's, that's what the idea was, that to take away this thinking that the preparations can be only made by an exalted few in, in some mountain, mystical mountain somewhere, but can be made by anybody anywhere. You know? uh, for example, mm -hmm. we have made these in, in Timbuktu, a project, uh, a very well-known project, which won the Organic World Prize. Uh, which is the second hottest and second driest place in India. You know? I mean, the temperatures go there to 45 degrees centigrade. I don't know how much that's in Fahrenheit, but it's really, really hot. And, and it's very dry, you know, uh, millimeters of rain. And in such a place, by getting the flowers from outside and getting the ingredients from outside, we had made preparations for two years and excellent quality preparations. I've, I've worked with preparations now for a decade and I can, uh, from the sensory thing, they really smell good. They feel good and they work well. You know, we use them in CPP. They're working really well. So, so that was one of the ideas of the Asian Fellowship to really make it democratic. That you know, it requires knowledge. It requires some ingredients, and that's what the Asian Fellowship is hoping to provide to the people who want to start doing this. Uh, can you describe how you would do uh, the skull preparation in such a dry climate, um, with it, you know, calling for some. Uh, running water over it? Yeah, so we have many. What we do is we take a, a barrel, you know, uh, like an oil barrel, one of those large uh, kind of met barrels you have, and then you keep the, the skull at the bottom of the barrel, and then you keep pouring water every week or 10 days. So, And you have a mm. kind of plug at the bottom of the barrel, so you, you let out the water every week, uh, eight days, so, and then you keep filling up the barrel from the top. So... So you can, Understood. yeah, you can generate that uh, uh, that thing of water flowing through by by using a barrel. You're right; it's an extremely dry place now. You know, last year we had lots of rains there, and there were some streams which are non-existent which came out. But again, the streams hardly last for a month or two. So, so many places uh, we use this barrel system uh, to to stimulate that water flow over the skull preparation. Mm. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, uh, what what calendar do you use? And uh, are you or do you know of anyone in India uh, doing any interesting astro agricultural research or development? Mm, again, um, you know, we we initially got the calendar from Peter, you know, and Peter was in the Southern Hemisphere in, in, in New Zealand and, and then he would just flip it. And, and use it in the northern system. And then we had our president uh, who was, uh, who was uh, uh, you know, the head of ISKCON, the Hare Krishna moment. And he had a very big farm in Mysore and he took it on uh, during his presidentship to, to make the calendar himself. And then he used something what we call the Lahiri ephemeris, which is a ephemeris printed out of India. Uh, and I think the difference is that we have these two uh, you know, astronomical models, right? You have the, the sidereal uh, uh, model, which we call the Vedic model or the, or the tropical, which is the Western model. And, and the Lahiri follows the Vedic model, you know, and, and because of that, there is a, uh, there's a slight gap in a month 
between these two systems. So our planting calendar is based on the Vedic uh, system. So that's slightly different, but uh, it, it works. It works really well. We've done some experiments here. They, they have worked quite well with, you can make out the difference between, you know, the uh, the root crop or if you put a if you put a radish uh, during a leaf time you have a very leafy radish and less root and higher during root you've seen the misshapes during the nodes uh, so that that has worked well for us uh, unfortunately in india there there's been this almanac knowledge but it was it was always by a word of mouth you know it was never kind of documented uh, in terms of uh, and when we come to other systems i will talk about it a little more there was no documented stuff we have. So, for example, we know of many poems, you know, written in, in Kerala and, and other places where the farmers would sing, which talks about about the almanac in, in, in terms of songs. In, in. And unfortunately, these were never documented. They were just passed by word of mouth. And, you know, that's not a very reliable way of passing information. One, from the terms of longevity, doesn't get preserved. And, and other from it can also get corrupted by... You know, somebody forgetting a word here or there or putting something. So, so there is no, uh, though the almanacs and, and the planting thing was, uh, uh, was part of our agriculture, uh, but it was never uh, documented. You know, that's why I'm, I'm really grateful to Albert Howard. And I think as the organic moment, we should, because he really took these Indian methods of agriculture and documented them in his book, uh, Agriculture Testament, if you, if you see, or even waste products from agriculture, where he documented on how the compost was made. He documented things about crop rotation, you know, uh, and really about planting trees around. And he brought all these things into the Indian systems, which which were practiced, but not documented, came into a book from, from Albert Howard. And so you kind of said it, but I just want to uh, kind of double back. Are there any documented uh, traditional Indian agricultural astro traditions documented even, you know, millennia ago, anything at all? Yeah. So there, there is a, uh, I mean, I've been looking very hard for it. We haven't found yet documented. The only thing we have, which is, uh, said, which you can say there is a documentation of is something called Vriksh Ayurveda, you know? So Ayurveda, you know, is a, is a healing medic, medical system for, for humans. But many people don't know there is something called Vriksh Ayurveda. And Vriksh means plant. And this was written by a man called Surapala from, from the Vedic text. And, you know, this was found in England. You know, because uh, one of the, if you want to do research on ancient Indian texts, all of the material is lying in Oxford and Cambridge and London. You know, it's well preserved over there. It's, it's not in India. And there was a man called Dr. Nene who went there and and found this text in Oxford. And, and then he really popularized it uh, a decade ago uh, called Rikshayada. He set up an institute in, in Hyderabad called Asian Agri. And, and they, they could only follow this text. Now, Surapala talked a lot about um, uh, liquid uh, manures. You know, like I said, even animal parts were used in that. They could, it was limited to trees. It was not to do with any of our crops, like you didn't have anything with uh, vegetables or rice or, or wheat, but it was mostly to do with trees. And they had very, very interesting conconditions. You know, they, they could even change the color of a flower on a tree, for example. So he has kind of conconditions. They could make, you know, they could change the color of flowers and they talked about general health and very, very briefly touched upon the link of certain trees to planets, you know. 
it was not so deeply done. Uh, there is a lot of uh, stuff out there. Like I said, it's in poems, it's in it's in thing, but documented like Surapala's uh, uh, book is not there. And now we have to be very, very careful with this uh, rewriting of history that we don't try to corrupt any of that knowledge which was there to to kind of glorify. So, so I mean, just to answer in short, no, I have not found right now any text, but I have attended a few talks where people allude to it, but there is no kind of text where it's written down on, on what was the logic. And that's why it's so great from the agriculture course on Steiner that he explains these things and these impacts, uh, which, which, are, which are very similar here to our knowledge here, but uh, there is no documentation. Well, uh, if you would tell us about some of these uh, consulting projects you're currently working on in uh, Thailand and uh, the Philippines and all over. Yeah, well, um, in India right now, I'm working on uh, a project uh, for rice, uh, basmati rice, which is very popular, which, which they want to double their production of biodynamic rice. And then there is, we have a lot of projects in India with, uh, I'm not advising biodynamity, but I'm helping source a buyer in Germany with uh, spices and tea and uh, we are the largest Demeter tea producer, biodynamic tea producer in the world and um, uh, for mango puree, we do a lot of mango uh, from India and primarily spices. So these are the few products uh, which I am not involved as a biodynamic advisor. I am for the rice project but for the others more as helping them with Demeter. I hope to work with you on the herbs. That's a very interesting topic coming up here in India that uh, we have also a long history of, of growing them, but we've not had any Demeter project yet. We could do that. We started a Demeter cotton project in the south, but that is not continued. In, in Thailand, Sam is a very interesting pioneer because he bought a piece of land which was, which was a disaster zone. You know, it, was, it was used for sand mining and it was really, really poor soil. I mean, if there was any soil, it was, it was very bad soil. And he had, he'd been doing organic for 20 years and he didn't have any solutions. And then he found uh, biodynamics and he could see in a couple of years, you know, the, in fact, in one year, he could see the change in the soil already by applying the preparations. And that is his vegetable farm. He has two farms. He has a 350 hectare coconut farm and a 12 hectare vegetable farm. And in the vegetable farm, we started doing biodynamics from 2016 and and it's incredible. It's the change on the farm and all the products, the quality of the products. He makes Thai curry there and coconut milk from his farm. And very soon that will be available in Demeter quality. In the Philippines, um, they want to start an association now because they had a history of biodynamics uh, before. And it uh, kind of uh, was done in spurts and in, in small location in silos. And now they want to kind of come together. And the biggest story there is there's a municipality of Katswagan, uh, led by Mayor Romel, a very incredible mayor who brought peace and prosperity to that municipality by starting his arms to farms program. You know, uh, this this municipality was a war-torn municipality. There were there were Muslim uh, terrorists who were fighting for land, and, and there was always uh, you know bombs and and killings. And he brought this concept of uh, getting all these uh, terrorists to become farmers by saying that if you give up your rifles and give up your guns, I will I will give you land and you can start farming. And now all of these people are organic farmers. And after doing now organic for 10 years, they want to go to the next level and they want to go biodynamic. So that's a very challenging project, which I will be reaching out to the worldwide biodynamic community because it's 
you know, 8,000 hectares, nearly 20,000 acres to do with all kinds of crops and uh, it will be the first biodynamic municipality, I think, in the world. Uh, to uh, It's a fifth class municipality, that means it's comparatively small compared to the 1,200 municipalities. Uh, it's on the smaller side in the Philippines. But but it's a start that we can do biodynamics on scale. You know, we can convert a whole whole municipality, whole town in, into uh, biodynamics and 20,000 acres or 8,000 hectares is still still quite a lot. Yeah, what a meaningful mission too. Well, uh, is there anything else um, on any of these subjects that you'd like to share with us? No, it's it's good uh, good to be here. I'm I'm very happy that you started the guild. I think we can build uh, more on that. You know, we we really need it. It is a craft. You know, it it is it is an art form in a way, making the preparations and and the farmer is a artist in a way so so i think more power to you you know i i hope you join us in our projects here and uh, uh, as a community you know we don't have to be really local we can we can really share because if you look at the 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 kind of crisis we have today you know you look at this climate crisis you know, and it, it's something which which cannot be done by america alone or india alone you know, we have to do it together we really have to join our hands and, and it has to be done together if you look at the food crisis now, there is there are food shortages in in many countries. You know, in uh, in Sri Lanka, they're having a huge crisis right now. So this agriculture and especially biodynamic agriculture is a pro is the answer to these problems of of you know food security of of climate climate change, and but only by joining hands together, like in the guild and association, joining hands together, we can we can address these concerns. And uh, you know, I'm a I'm a father of two kids, and and what the one of the main reasons I do what I do is to to leave something a little better, smaller places which are more meaningful for them. You know, we we don't want to leave deserts uh, for our children, and and that's why I hope that we can all work together and and really address these uh, concerns, crises in in our in our small way. Exactly, a uh, greater human destiny. Uh, again, um, thank you, Sandeep. You can find Sandeep. Uh, listed as a Biodynamic Federation advisor at biodynamic-advisor.org uh, at, and at uh, mandalasolutions.in. And of course, uh, Biodynamic Guild at biodynamicguild.org. Thank you very much again for joining us, Sundeep. Thanks.